Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got two incredible songwriters from different generations who quickly in this conversation find common ground on which to converse. Liz Fair and Zella Day. Now, Liz Fair crashed into the indie rock world in a huge way in the early 90s with her instant classic album Exile in Guyville, and she was already the talk of the town, in this case Chicago, before she had even performed publicly. It was an auspicious start to a fascinating career that went from indie world stardom to Lilith Fair to composing for films and TV to consciously pop-leaning album to a fantastic memoir called Horror Stories that came out in 2019. And it comes full circle, sort of, with her new album Soberish, which she created with the help of producer Brad Wood, who she worked with on her early albums, including Exile. Here's a little bit of a song from Soberish called The Game. You don't remember, do you? How many times I've called your name? Now, Zella Day took a very different path in her music life, starting out really young, 15, trying to write songs and make it in Nashville. That led to a revelation that she'd rather perform herself, and eventually a record deal and 2015's pop-centric album Kicker. She played Coachella and other huge festivals, but wasn't fully satisfied with where she was artistically, as you'll hear in this chat. After relocating to L.A., she fell in with a slightly more serious crowd, including pals like Lana Del Rey and Wise Blood, and her music shifted a bit. She's currently working on an album with producer Jay Joyce and recently released a song with Natalie Merring of Wise Blood called Holocene. Fair and Day hit it off right away in this conversation, diving right into a chat about restarting their careers post-COVID. Fair's dad is a retired infectious diseases expert, which gave her some unique insight, as well as the challenges of not giving too much of yourself during an album's promotional cycle. They also tackle the meaning of the word soberish, which is pretty great. Enjoy. I have just kind of come out of being timid about COVID. Okay. We go on walks now to practice me being unmasked around other people to get me ready for the tour in August. My father is an infectious disease specialist, so this felt like something I've been dreading forever. I feel like I've been waiting. Or preparing for your whole life. (laughs) Yeah, like a prepper. You know, I'm like, all right, here's what we're going to (laughs) do. I'm just kind of cruising now that I have the vaccine. It feels like, I don't know, life is kind of like accelerated back to some type of normalcy. Like in the past couple of weeks, I've I've been out. I've I've That's been great. out. I went to the Hollywood Bowl for a show. Wow. Yeah. Which was great. Wow. Was that the Foo Fighters? No, that was Madison Square Garden. No, I went to see Flying Flying Lotus and Thundercat did like a charity show. So it wasn't really, it wasn't listed online or anything. And it was kind of like a warm-up set. It was sort of like for friends and family. Did they like social distance or anything? Like, was it just fully mm, normal? 
I mean, it wasn't full capacity, so people had space. It was definitely, it was like kind of like pods, like whoever, I don't know how they're doing it. I, mean, I read a little bit on their site about social distancing, and I think they're trying to definitely enforce that, but it was pretty relaxed. I think my favorite thing about just going out now and even to restaurants is, is the QR codes on everything. Like I would so much QR code my way through life. Like I don't like, it's kind of like we're sitting at the Hollywood Bowl and we were able to scan a code to order food in our seat and then just like go and pick it up instead of standing in line. And I felt that way kind of at restaurants too, like not having to hold sticky things, like no sticky menus and just, you know, it's kind of nice. Although I find myself kicking the crosswalk signs with my foot. And my son last night was like, that's not cool. Other people have to touch that. And so I started to kick it with the side of my boot. No, I think it's (laughs) fine. If people are going to touch it with their hands, there's something wrong with them, not with me. (laughs) (laughs) So you have kids. I do. I have one son, but he's grown up. He's like, you know, the same age as people I work with now, which is funny. Yeah, he did all the album art for my new record. Oh, wow. Which is so, I don't know how to explain what that felt like, but it felt like he's reached an age where it's almost like I have nothing left to teach you. I sort of gave him the idea of what I wanted for my album, the concept. Mm -hmm. And then I thought I would sit with him because he does computer graphics really well. I asked him to kind of make something that almost Inception-like went backwards through time through all of the significant places in my career, like all the places that I attached to, you know, as if it was just kind of like a memory jumble of like how time spirals backwards or forwards or however you want to look at that. And it was such a weird experience to, if I sat there with him and tried to create with him, it actually got worse. But when I left the room and just left him to just do it, I mean, like every time I sign my record now, I'm actually looking at my son's art and it's just so cool. It's it's a really neat thing to have that kind of special meaning behind it. I don't know. That's amazing. Recently, I did like a short music video for the song that I have called Dance for Love. And I was really trying, like my mom is so, she's got like a crazy imagination and has always been that way, just has great ideas and has always been able to just speak to me about anything that I'm making in a really just intuitive way. She's a singer, but never had really like a career in music, but has always just been a creative person. So we've always been able to kind of muse together. And uh, this video that I just made, we came up with the concept together. I had like had one concept and it just wasn't working out. And then she's like, why don't you just come over and we'll hang out in the backyard. And it's just the funniest most random like Jason from Friday the 13th (laughs) slashes me while I'm roller skating and we end up in heaven together dancing for love and that's me and my mom's concept (laughs) which is like really the best it's the best I mean doesn't get old (laughs) it's so great that you guys have that similar aesthetic you can kind of feed off each other and help each other with creative projects I came to that late the idea of keeping it in the family and I love it now you know it yeah there's something about that long relationship that makes whatever you end up doing resonate more yeah well they really know you they really know you mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it's funny because it's like my mom she's not really tapped into new music or really like what's happening 
on that front or visually even she's just living her life and listening to my demos like she's like I know I'm her favorite artist <laughs> and then that is like I'm sure you know that's a pretty skewed viewpoint but at the same time there is energetically she just knows like we're on the same vibration and she does really assist me in thinking outside of myself sometimes I felt that way going in with I, on this new album, I worked with my original producer who did my first record. Yeah. And I felt that like it was a little bit awkward at first because we hadn't worked together in 20 years. But pretty soon, just having someone who knows you that well, someone who can kind of already say like, well, this is what you're like. This is what you used to do. Or I've always loved this about your work or whatever. I was so grateful for that. I wanted to actually ask you about that because I was reading a little bit about Soberish and Bradwood, right, is the producer's name. Yeah, Bradwood. And it's been, what, 11 years since you guys have recorded together? More. 20. Oh, 20, God. 22? 23? So all of that time and you still choose him, which I think is so beautiful. Was it just wanting to return to like a familiar part of yourself, knowing that he can really hold that space for you? Or what was really kind of the determining factor in wanting to go back there and work with him again? It was spurred by putting out in 2018 a reissue of my first record along with the I'm going to use the word demo tapes, which they were not. They were like their own thing. I did this cassette project on my four track before I made Guyville. Just me recording on the latest technology of the day. These four tracks. In Chicago, right? <laughs> yeah, like in Chicago, four track cassette. In Chicago at your parents' house, right? And just like <laughs> making up the craziest shit. Like it was just something I did when I came home slightly drunk at night. You know, like after a night out or something, I would make up these crazy wacky songs. And so we put this big bundled box set out in 2018. And the process of pulling all those old artifacts together and speaking with people who had been around during that time, it's almost like I got seduced back into the self that I had been in a way that no less immersive process would have. Like, it snuck under my skin and I remembered things that I hadn't remembered in a long time. And he's just so great working with him in the studio. He takes what I actually am and tries to make the most of it rather than trying to take what I am and perfect it or pull it in or make it more regular, more palatable for people. He takes and maximizes the quirkiness. That's a real talent and a gift that not all producers have. It depends on your personality. But for me, as a woman, like I can be both in the studio. I can be really powerful and bullheaded, but also kind of fragile and delicate and a little uncertain. And I think that that's like a process that I'm going through in a journey with my own music and kind of like returning to my childlike self because I got started at a very young age, like at 18, I, I signed a publishing deal. Wow and a record deal. And then everything wow. kind of just unraveled quickly. And um, I made a big pop record, like a big alternative pop record. I know, I love it. And thanks, and kind of just shot things off into the stratosphere. It was kind of like a crash course in everything. I'd never toured before that, you know, and I just made this mm -hmm. record and then had to go represent it out in the world and then build a different relationship with the record. All that to say, I think that 
there were moments or just choices on that record that I wouldn't make now, but because I'm different now, I mean, I was 18. It's been so long since that time in my life. My brain was not even fully formed. (laughs) Yeah. And then since then, it's been trying to kind of find the place where I would feel the most confident being all of those quirky parts, all of the parts that make me me that I feel like when I started making music, even as a kid, I had like, there's almost like this intrinsic sound that comes out of you naturally. Yeah. And then you kind of build and grow and write a million songs and kind of takes on a new shape, even from like record to record. I felt in recording my record in July with Jay Joyce in Nashville felt like kind of that perfect combination of where I'm at now, but also my childlike self and him also just providing the space for me to feel I could kind of do no wrong. But he was there to guide it if it got too out of control, (laughs) which you need. Like you need somebody to be like a good revise and editor, you know? Oh, yes. It's important. (laughs) That's like the best skill in production is if they can take all the craziness that's going on and you leave the room for 20 minutes and you come back in and they've sorted the best of it and like melded it. Brad does this all the time. He melds it into some sort of like sound ball of all the crazy takes and slapped a couple plugins on it. And you're like, wait, what? You know, like it just opens up in this incredible, it's like magic. It feels like you're creating magic. Yeah, it's like sound wizardry. Yeah, what you were just saying about that, like I think about that a lot, that there's a self of you before teenage years and then comes all the peer pressure and the trying on of adult identity. And you made a big record right then. I mean, that's crazy. Like, how do you feel about that record now? Like, what do you hear in that record? What do you hear compared to what other people do? I've thought a lot about how to answer this question in like a public way, because that time in my life as kind of an artist, like a young artist becoming, and I think having something so permanent that marks such a changing time in your life is difficult. And I think would be difficult for anyone. I mean, some people are different where it's like, I don't know, like you have the Fiona Apples of the world that I feel like at 20 was just making, like she was so, (laughs) you know, like zeroed in on what she was. I don't know if she feels that way. I'm not speaking for her, but for me, it's kind of like, yeah, I tried on kind of the big hat first. I kind of did the big lift off. And then what I hear, I feel my kid's self not totally fitting in to the record. It's almost bigger than what I was at the time. I don't know if I was completely ready for the magnitude of what all of that was, because I feel like right now, as like a 26-year-old, I'm really like kind of catching up to like my voice in a way and making decisions based on a real honest place of understanding myself. So I think what I hear in Kicker is me not quite knowing myself yet. I think that is a normal journey for everyone that you would have a self, a like integrated self, and then you would hit that early adulthood period where you try on personas and you become a different kind of person. And then the job of the rest of your life is reintegrating with the personas, the personas and trying like struggling to be a whole person with all of that incorporated. I relate to what you're saying so much because in a different scale, My first record was way more known than I expected it to be. And I had, I put out a record that took off before I'd ever 
performed on stage. So I had this horrible catch up period of huge expectations and no experience. So I would be out there on stage, like knee knocking with all these people going like this, this is the album of the year. Like this person is the artist of the year. You're like, sorry, not sorry. Yeah, no, it's like seeing an ice skater on the rink and like they keep falling and you're like, oh God, I feel so bad for her. You know? Like, yeah. yeah. And it's taken me the rest of my career to become a performer. You know, I had to like catch up to what kind of happened right out of the gate. So you didn't totally love being on stage then at first. How could I? It was a scarier place. It was totally a scarier place. It was almost like an accident, you know, like that I didn't connect my actions with my consequences. Look at that. How did a young person do that? And I wasn't your age. You have like an entirely different story because 18 is in a different category altogether. I can't imagine how you dealt with all that publicity. My record wasn't as successful as Exile and Guyville, which I think is great <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think that I I was ready for that. I think to myself all the time that some of those singles off of my record, I'm so glad that they weren't bigger than they were because I need the time to be ready for if that does happen. With the record, I was happy that it had I guess you could call it like moderate success, like successful than most, but still not so much that it was, you know, in any ways imprisoning me. You know what I mean? To like have to do it again and again. Or, you know what I mean? I, I imagine that's how that would work. And I think that record kind of gave me, it was like the experience of doing the tours and, you know, playing Coachella and making certain relationships because I was so young and I'm not from LA. I'm from a small town in Arizona. And this was my kind of first introduction into the music world. And it was great to have a record that was performing well so that it gave me some kind of, you know, a little bit of a puffed out chest to like kind of show up and be like, yeah, I can do this. (laughs) I'm doing this. I belong here. Did you feel safe? Did you feel protected at that young age? I mean, maybe I'm just super old, but like 18 sounds really young. Not all the time. I have a really amazing family. I've already, you know, brought up my mom. She is somebody like she wasn't a momager. Like I had a manager, but my mom was like at the time, even I mean, leading up to 18. Right. It's like signing at 18 didn't just happen out of nowhere. There were years like I I started writing in Nashville when I was 15. We would go on writing trips like. Yeah, once a month. And I would go and stay there for a week. And then, you know, everything kind of snowballs and leads to the next. After like a year, I had I had music, I had demos. And then we were going to maybe like we were entertaining the idea of making a record. And then that kind of started happening. And then at my (laughs) ripe age of 16, I was like, I don't like this. Like learn like using my voice. Right. For the first time. Never have had a problem doing that, which I think has protected me somewhat. Like I've protected myself and, and knowing exactly just when something doesn't feel good, you know, don't have all the experience in the world, which like is whatever, but I didn't like what was happening there. And then that's when LA kind of became a different opportunity because I had met some writers out here through writing in Nashville. And so my mom was really kind of by my side through all of that. So it's like, I felt protected and having somebody that like had me, like, you know, like a mama has her baby bird. And then I did have a great manager. And so I think 
I felt protected up until the point of touring when I, I was put together with a band that like I didn't really choose because again, I was so young and fresh to LA and there had been a band put together for me and then I was kind of thrown out on the road and that was a weird time of really just have like a sink or a swim having to figure out how to really exist in a group of like really what felt like strangers. Like it didn't feel yeah. great to play music with people that weren't connected to my music the way that I was. That was such a great lesson. Like not there anymore and I'm not gonna be there when I go into her this record. It's like, I've had the time now to establish my own relationships with people that are way more aligned with me. So in that, like, no, didn't really feel protected really by some of the people that I was around. This is always just an interesting thing. It's like with a music video that I made for Hypnotic. I watched that video and it's definitely, it's like a movie. I'm proud of it. I made it with my friend, but I definitely think that I was dealing with these sort of like subliminal pressures of being more sexual than I think I even knew how to be like, I feel like I watched that and I'm like, what? you don't even know what you're doing. Like, you don't even know <laughs> what you're doing, but you're wearing like hot pants and you're like making out with some guy in the backseat of a rented Cadillac and like, what the fuck? That sounds like you were sort of commercialized before you got a chance to actually establish those, you know, playing music with people is, is kind of an intimate thing to do. You have to listen intently to each other and harmonize with each other, like come into alignment with each other. And so I can very much imagine how it would feel. Sometimes I feel that way on the first day of rehearsal, if I haven't seen my band for a really long time, and I'm just used to playing on my acoustic guitar at home, and then I go into a rehearsal space, and I have this like super powerful band behind me. And I feel literally like I'm on the tip of a rocket ship. And I'm like, wait, I can't feel the song. Like, wait, like yeah. I'm getting blasted from the back. And it takes me, I have left rehearsals and cried, just not sad, just like I couldn't fit into the place, whatever that position, that lead person position was. And also losing that security of when I play my guitar at home, it's to my pace. It connects with my voice and connects with the words. There's that flow state and how to find that in the midst of a big loud rock band like how do you you know there's always there's always a death of one part of me when I go on tour and I always mourn the death of my real self and have to put on the Liz Fair self which is like I think of it as a pie graph let's say here's the pie graph of me like here's the whole circle here's the sliver that's Liz Fair it's only like 20 percent something or other but it's been exaggerated to such an extent that it almost sticks out of the pie graph in this strong signal and it's but it's a narrow bandwidth that I have to kind of it's fun to be her it's really fun to be her once I'm her but there's always this sort of death of the rest of me when I go out and then coming home I have to like find me again I have to like let her go would you call that a persona then? Or would you just call that, I don't know, like an iteration or a, or a branch of yourself? I don't think of like the performer in my own self, in my relationship with her as like a persona, but definitely a part of me that like in, especially during this time where I've been in more of a hibernation period, 
that performer does go dormant and has to, then you do have to kind of wake it up. And it takes a second. I can relate to what you said earlier. When you feel like you have a strong voice in the studio, but there's a part of you that's really uncertain, I have to get rid of all the uncertain parts of me. And I have to just stay in this strong voice, which when you're in it, you get used to it. Like you said, most of friends and family will not appreciate that person because she's like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a more like callous, like, I'm not thinking about this. I'm just doing as it's happening. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And that feels good. It does feel good. Yeah, that's also part of being in the studio too. That is, it's a super important part to access that Jay, when I was making the record, I felt like her. I felt like that performer in the studio, which makes me feel so excited to perform it live because it was like channeling both things. The girl at home in this apartment, you know, writing the songs and that almost uncertainty, right? Or the fragility (laughs) there. And then also the space to be kind of harder. Like, I think that's that's like a, a part of it. And you kind of have to be. It is a part of it. You have to. And I think it's the way to do it for touring. I wish they didn't just take the songwriters or the performers and say, here's the externals. I wish they had like a moment to say, here's how you're going to cope. I was thinking about that tennis player. I, I can't remember her name at the moment who said, you know, it was just too much to do that kind of press tour before. Oh, the anxiety. The anxiety and stuff. I would love to see the industry address artists' emotional state and their mental health along with this so that there was strategies about how to do endless hours of press without feeling like a total fraud. You know, at a certain point you start, you don't even know what you're saying. I actually get really afraid of that. Being as young as I was when I kind of got thrown into that world, like nobody really, I feel like had the conversation with me where they, which maybe it's good because I maybe would have, you know, I, I would have gotten too heady about it and anxious, but nobody really sat me down and was like, you're going to have to talk about yourself a lot and you're going to have to make peace with that <laughs> now because it's, it's a part of the job. And I think, I think being out of it for a little bit, I, and coming back in, like with doing press for the record and having to think about talking about myself all the time gives me anxiety. I get it. It gives me anxiety because I'm just like, I don't really like that person in the room. Like generally, I'm always trying to just figure out what that balance is mentally so that I can enjoy it rather than dread having to do it over and over. Do you have any advice as far as making peace with the (laughs) talking about yourself? I'm going to make it up. I'm going to make it up right here because I think it needs to be said. I'm like, do I have any advice? I'm going to have some advice. I think that an exercise that could be helpful is to sit down with a piece of paper and on the piece of paper, write about all the things that you are currently feeling really in love with right now about your life yourself. And then maybe don't talk about those things. Maybe hold some stuff back that's just for you so that you feel like, I think when you, whenever you get outside of yourself, like when I had my son, suddenly I went from being someone that would talk to people, my friends and family saying like, it's so hard for me. It's just, you don't understand what I have to deal with. Like, it's so hard for me. And then I had a child. I'm like, oh, no, it's really not a bad job at all. It's actually kind of a good job. You know, there's a lot of worse jobs to have. So getting out of yourself, I think if you staged yourself going into press as I'm going to protect myself 
I'm, I'm going to know who this, almost like you create a second you and say, I'm going to put her here. And then I'm going to go out for her in front of her and talk to this person. And I believe in her. Yeah, I believe in her, like your own advocate. Yeah, it's important. And to preserve sacred parts of you that they can't ask you about, you'll know the five things you're not going to reveal, that you're not going to talk. Maybe it's a, you know, like, what songs are you into right now? And maybe you just don't want to talk about that right now. That question in particular, I don't like answering. I don't either. Because I'm just like, well... That's my own, like, that's like my secret sauce at the moment. I agree. I'm being inspired by people and sounds that are going to contribute to like what I'm writing right now. And that in itself is a sacred space. It's like giving away the KFC recipe or something. Yes. It's like, you know, like, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But do you know how that is in the moment when people ask you stuff and all you're thinking about doing is just like, okay, I got to answer the next one. I got to answer. So you'll reach for anything in yourself. And then at the end of the interview, you're like, I wish I hadn't talked about that. Or why did I open up that whole section of myself? I feel depleted now. Yeah. Whereas if I make sure I know what I'm cordoning off, I don't always do this, believe me. But when I do do it, I found it really helpful to like just say, I'm protecting these areas and then I'm going to go out as my own ambassador and talk about the other stuff. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Are you going to be touring? Are you coming up on some tours? Yeah. So I've got some festival dates that are booked right now. I'm playing Beach Life in... uh, Yeah, I haven't been to that one. I think it's it's new. It's like a freshie. It's the Pennywise, yep. Jim Lund. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. And then there's two that I can't really talk about right now because they have not been announced, but I'm excited. I love playing festivals. Yeah, I do too. I think they're the best. It's social, right? It's really fun. It's social and it's, yeah, I love a good artist area. (laughs) 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 I love a good artist area. So that, and then really I'm trying to figure out right now as obviously tour dates were booked for 2020 that now are coming back for 2021. So for me, I didn't have 
dates for 2020. And so as we're releasing singles, I'm like crossing my fingers for just a badass support slot. Mom, we've had like a couple of like opportunities and we're going to land one and I can't wait because that's sort of where I'm at. You will. What about you? When are you going out? August, you said, right? August 13th. And I'm busy like coming up with all my COVID strategies because I'm still paranoid because of my dad. You know, I think if you grew up with this rampant fear of infectious disease, you're not yeah. having a good time right now. It's like, How is he doing? <laughs> oh, he's fine. I mean, that's the awful part is that I was expecting to have all this kind of inside scoop and this super advocate. And my dad is retired. I don't know. He's at least 10 years now, something like that. And so he was just so fucking happy not to have to work the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. He's like, I missed this. Yes. This thing yes. missed me by a long shot. Whoa. And I was like, God damn it, dad, get us some good drugs. What is going on? And he's like, Rah. you know, like <laughs> he's, he's living his best life and he has checked out. He thinks it's fascinating to watch and he's a big fan of Fauci. You know, he knows him from the NIH and stuff, but like, it was very frustrating to me. I was expecting to get like the quick line to the good stuff. And like, no. yeah, I think everybody was hoping for that. I know. And he was saying stuff that really freaked me out. I'm like, dad, tell me that the vaccines are going to work. Tell me da da da. And he just started laughing and he goes, honey, even if the vaccines are 70% effective, which is really great. You know, that right there is really good. Only 40% of the people are going to take them. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, they're not. And he's laughing. He's like laughing at human nature because finally the world could see what he's been dealing with for the last 50 years. Like stupid human nature. Oh, with people like refusing. Yeah. Like the antidote. <laughs> and crazy conspiracy theories about illness. And, and you're like, cool. All the kind of hoopla that he's had to deal with. He took a slightly like, haha, now you can see what I've been dealing with. I've had conversations recently with people that have really shocked me and not wanting to get the vaccine. What do they say? They just say it's the long-term effects that they're just like, you know, the long-term effects. Like, we don't know the long-term effects, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I just, there's so many FDA-approved drugs like birth control, right? Where I'm like, well, the long-term effects of birth control are also pretty fucked up. And we take those like Tic Tacs. So, like, I don't know if this is going to stop a global pandemic. I'm for it. I've read enough and seen enough to make me trust and believe that it's going to be okay. And I need to be on this side of things, which just makes me feel good to protect myself and also those around me. And if you're traveling, all that stuff. But I did have a friend say that she wasn't going to get it because everybody else has it. That's a terrible attitude. Did you guys <laughs> did you guys manage to not fight about it? Yeah. Yeah. Managed to not fight about it. I think that that's kind of been also something that we've learned how to do over the past few years is just when it comes to political conversations, doing a good job at trying to love people in your life. For me, it's been difficult with some of my family members to just Remember that I do love them, even though I do not agree with them. Yeah. There's a divide, but but love does conquer all, right, Liz? <laughs> right? I'm going to say yes. The uh, magic eight ball says yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question. I'm so curious because it's something that I'm dealing with now, and I'm going to shift away from vaccine conversation into social media 
when you were releasing Exile and Guyville, right? And it was the iconic record that it was and everything that you had was put into the music because you can tell, you know, listening to those songs that everything that you were experiencing, everything that you were as a young woman, everything you wanted to be was all being said there. And if that was also combined with a label telling you that you also had to be a social media star, how would you have responded to that? And for someone like me, who is kind of dealing with that, what would be your advice? Oh, God, I'm going to be truthful. You're not going to like the first answer. It's okay. I would have been such a, like, good luck finding me. You know, like, they had trouble getting me to do the album cover. Like, I was just a social party girl, AWOL. I felt like there was no social media. So literally, if I didn't answer my phone. You can't find me. You can't find me. We didn't have cell phones. Yeah. Where the hell were you? Out. I was like, people's <laughs> houses. I was like, you know, someone would be like, hey, I've got a house in Michigan. We're all going up there for the weekend. You want to come? And I'd be like, yes, I will. You know, like I was, I saw my music career as sort of an opportunity to further my social life. You know what I mean? <laughs> I knew I was making a good album. I'm not just selling the music. I'm selling myself. I don't like that. I don't want to be doing it. I would give up all the fame just to get the music heard and let the music be the star. I like to make art and I like to make music, but I don't care about the fame part. And I would have definitely not done what they said. I honestly don't think they could have found me, but I was a terrible, like after I put out my second record, I refused to tour entirely. And I got a very strongly worded legal letter from the label that was like, you have to tour. It's in your contract. So I was like, fuck you. Why didn't you want to? Why didn't you want to tour? Just the lake house in Michigan. It just was like an extended vacation <laughs> <laughs> that lasted for three years. Yeah, I just, I had no, I had no performer aspirations. I was. Interesting. Imagine this. When I grew up, I was a headstrong, not willful, but determined young woman. And I was all about being a visual artist. And I drew and I painted. And I, in college, I worked for famous artists. I got internships with my idols and I sold my art to make rent. Like I literally sold pieces of art. So performing, being on stage, I also had stage fright. Like I, had, I when I say I had zero interest, you might as well make that a negative interest in being on stage, like no interest whatsoever. So the fact that that became my job and that social media, the idea that if you look at old videos of me on whatever talk show they put me on, I'm literally wearing like a shitty brown sweater and clogs and I'm totally serious and I'm like talking about serious issues like I know at the age of 26. There is no part of me that's like, hi, like I am now, like, hi, it's so good to see you. Great. Yeah. This is all the product of the business <laughs> and the true artist. You see this face? You see this face? You see this face All that kind of, that I learned, I would have just been, and if, if I were looking at you and saying social media, two pieces of advice. One, lead, don't follow. No matter what they say, if you can make something you like doing work and have a passion for, don't listen to anyone. Just keep doing that thing. You have to be the one that sees where you're going to arrive in 10 years. No one's going to do that for you. The business itself, 
works with each other. So even the people who represent you represent other artists and they have more to align with each other than invested in your particular life career path, even if they're working wholeheartedly for that. Don't forget that your other artists are your reality checks. Do you remember when you started having the foresight of my career in 10 years? Or was that just immediate for you? And that's how you always thought about it? Because for me, it's been an arriving to a place where I felt even comfortable or not even comfortable, but more so confident enough to imagine myself doing this in 10 years. Yes, 1997 or 1990s. Yeah, 1997 after my son was born. So before my third record, I had to make a conscious choice. And again, that, that centered a lot of things for me, becoming a mom and owning my first house and taking on responsibility as an adult. And I really stepped away from that social scene I was just describing. And I went back to the person I'd been growing up, kind of went to a more preppy area, started being a housewife kind of thing. And when I decided to get back into music, which was White Chocolate Space Egg, my third record, which led to the Lilith Fair type, moment that I had, I had to decide first. I knew enough about the business by then. I knew what touring was. I knew what I liked and didn't like. And frankly, nobody gets a free ride in life. You're going to have to have some kind of job and you have a fantastic fucking job. And it's a maturity. You just have to go like, of all the things I could do for money, this is pretty fucking great. But everybody has to do something for money and every job sucks about two thirds of it. You know, so do I love the one third enough or can I make the one third enough of a passion of mine to justify the two thirds? And at that point, I thought, yeah, I can. I do believe it's a beautiful thing to make music, play it for people that love it, have them clap for you and put that out. You know, all the people that come up to you and say that song meant so much to me. You saved my life during this breakup. Those kind of things that what it actually does in the world, your music is actually making the world better. Yeah. But you will have to fight through all the other shit because it is shit and it will continue to be shit. Even if you get, there's no level at which you can rise above the shit. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you a quick question then. Okay. One of the things that I think is so striking and remarkable about your music is the acrobatic nature of not just your vocal, but your performance. It feels like you're flipping in and out of emotions as you're singing. Do you feel at all like you're bringing acting to it? I have like almost two blended answers for that because acting is something that I have always rejected until recently, until I kind of had the control to write my own scripts in my music videos when I was younger and playing music and I had some opportunities to be on television shows like Disney, Nickelodeon, whatever, whatever was there that I just, I felt so uncomfortable, felt so uncomfortable, but I've also had people around me tell me that acting is something that I should pursue because I'm a natural actress. And I don't even know if I knew what that meant until very recently when my relationship with my performance in my songs is kind of a slipping in and out of 
character. And I was having a conversation the other night with my friend Kate. She was like, you know, the thing that I really pick up on and and why I love listening to your music so much is that you're a storyteller beyond words, but with emotion, an emotional storyteller, which, yeah, I love bringing through these characters song to song and the record. It's actually something that I've also been a little insecure about. When you listen to the record, there's such a range of things that I'm doing and saying and feeling. And I've felt before that there wasn't enough space for it. But right now in my life, I'm really embracing that and giving myself all the space to be all of the things that I want to be. When you're writing music or playing your music, it's for me, it's out of body. It's kind of like the most free place yeah. that I can imagine being. It's like such a high. And I think that actors feel that way too when they're losing themselves in a character. I feel like there's a river above us and it's our job to attach to the river. And once you attach to the river, you're flowing and it's just, it's yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Look at that. Oh, it makes my eyes water. Yeah. It makes my eyes water. Okay, last question for you. What does soberish mean? <laughs> well, I am still uh, experimenting and investigating that definition. Um, <laughs> I'm doing the lab work and the research right now for you. Um, no, it just, it's on one level, it's a very surface idea. It, they legalized pot in 2016 at the same time that my son went away to college. So I found myself overindulging in a way that I was like, well, how the hell am I supposed to do this at this age? I felt like I had to go through an adolescence again. Like, too much, too little. Oh, I'll never do it again. Oh my God, give it all to me. You're like, oh my God, edibles, fuck me up. Yes, like, fuck. yes. Like I was, I went through a whole fucking thing, you know, yeah. like the ill, I didn't know how much the illegality had held me back, you know, from my <laughs> voracious self. Oh my God. But then I began over the course of the Trump presidency and further, I began to think about how hard it is to take reality in the face, straight in the face. And I thought about all the ways, because this album is about falling in love and falling out of it. It's not about the actual relationship part. It's about the beginnings and the endings. And I can use love sometimes as a drug in a way. I recognize that about myself. And I can use certain things as a reality escape where I ought to be looking at how much or how little I'm doing of that. Like, And I began to expand soberish into being this definition of, and that's why I put the street sign. It's almost like the two states of sleeping and waking, of me going off on a tangent of denial, imagination, or drugs, or whatever it is, where I flip into that ish side, and then I'll flip back into the sober side, where I'm very competent and very detail-oriented, and then I'll flip into ish. And I'm doing that flickering back and forth like a star twinkling all the time. And I just started to think about that. And so soberish to me is that state. You're not wasted. You're not too far off the corner, but you're just twinkling all the time between being realistic and being completely <laughs> out of your fucking mind. <laughs> I need a little bit of that ish to do what I do. You need the ish. It's very important. Yeah. It's very important, but like to not be um, so ish out yeah. into the stratosphere that you can't. You have to be able to come back to sober when you need it. Yeah. And can I ask you one last thing about that? Like when you say you need your ish, don't you feel when you find your ish and it doesn't matter what got you there, that there's a connection to a, a kind of 
not primitive, but like your basic human nature. There's a remembering to the earth. Yeah, the child self. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's what it means to me. So at a deeper level, it's returning to forget society, forget all these rules and games we play. It's a returning to my essence. It's a returning to my essential human being self, which I need to check in with a lot. That's, that's so inspiring. Ah. <laughs> I feel like I needed this conversation. I'm so glad. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Liz Fair and Zella Day for chatting. If you like what you heard, follow us on all your favorite social medias and podcast platforms. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme was composed and performed by The Rain. See you next time.